Well, welcome to Like Flint Radio. I'm your host, GK. Uh, on the line with me all the way from the United States, I have Stephen Missick. Uh, Stephen joined us on Like Flint Radio. He came on in show 29 and spoke to uh, Cliff and Andy in that episode. Uh, and we've invited uh, Stephen to come back on, give us an update on uh, events in Syria uh, we're going to be talking about that. We're going to be talking about the Aramaic language. Uh, we're going to be talking about uh, Stephen's movie that he's in the process of putting together and uh, and a number of other things. So uh, welcome back to Like Flint Radio, Stephen Missick. Thank you. It's good to be back. Uh, thanks for coming back on. Uh, I understand that there's a major storm there uh, in Texas and uh, it has made the news here, that major uh, storm that hit Mexico and uh, and uh, Texas. So I was, I'm glad to hear that we can make it. Uh, I will let people know we are having difficulties because of the storm. Your Skype's playing up, so uh, but we'll do our best and see how we go with uh, you know the scheduled meeting that we've had. Um, if you wouldn't mind, just kicking off, if maybe people didn't hear show 29, Stephen, can you give us a little bit of your background? Tell us a little bit who you are and what it is you do, and then we can talk about Syria if you like. All right. Well, my name's Stephen Andrew Mystic. I've uh, spent a lot of time studying uh, Middle Eastern Christianity, uh, especially the, the Assyrian Church of the East. I've made several research trips to the Middle East, been to Egypt, Israel, Palestinian Authority, Lebanon, Syria, several visits. I'm also a chaplain in the United States military, the National Guard. I've been deployed to Iraq twice. The last time I went as a chaplain, the first time I went as a soldier. I'm also a doctoral student. I'm, in, I'm uh, earning a doctorate of ministry in Houston Graduate School of Theology, and uh, the doctoral project I'm working on is going to be uh, just educating people about the uh, humanitarian crisis facing Assyrian Christians and trying to mobilize aid, especially like my, my thesis project. So I've written several books on uh, the uh, Aramaic roots of Christianity and also uh, illustrated some books about you know, various biblical and uh, religious subjects. That sounds like a, a very busy uh, lifestyle you, you have there, Stephen. Right. Um, one of the main reasons we invited you on, we wanted to talk about current events uh, in Syria. Uh, so if we, if we can just kick off in general talking about what's going on in Syria, but then I really want to hone in what's happening to the Christian community there. So um, just from your point of view, um, can you let us know, tell us what's happening in Syria uh, as far as you see what's going on uh, presently? All right. Uh, I first visited uh, Syria in 2001. Mm -hmm. uh, actually, after I graduated college, I decided I just want to go, you know, you see a lot of Australian backpackers who travel the world like I do, so I thought I was just going right. to go and, you know, visit Aramaic, speaking villages in the Middle East, because that was kind of my passion, something I studied a lot. Uh, so I spent uh, about a month and a half 
traveling around Syria, stayed in Damascus. I also went to the Kabor River Valley, where uh, uh, in the 30s, a lot of Assyrian refugees from Iraq settled there. So this community has been there for some time. Uh, so anyway, I was able to, to observe a lot. And you have the, the Assad regime in Syria. And about that time, he was relatively new. And uh, I went over there not really interested in the government, mostly interested in the Christian community, especially the Aramaic Christians living there. Uh, right outside of Damascus, there's a village called uh, Malula, which is a uh, Christian village. They speak Aramaic there. They speak uh, probably the, the closest living dialect to the Aramaic that Jesus spoke. Mm. And then the Assyrians are in the uh, eastern uh, eastern Syria, and they speak a modern form of Aramaic. Only Still related to the way that Jesus spoke, but the, the, the dialect in the Malula is a little closer. So I was able to go to Malula, uh, visit uh, Aleppo, a lot of places there. Like I said, initially I wasn't interested in the regime. I was just interested in visiting Aramaic communities, uh, the churches of Syria, and a lot of the historical and, logic, and archaeological sites like the, the Crack de Chevalier, Crusader Castle, amazing, and the ruins of Palmyra. But uh, it's a police state, very repressive. Uh, you know, people would say it's like, well, they protect the Christians, but uh, just observing a totalitarian police state with, you know, plainclothes, uh, you know, police officers, government agents all over the place is very disturbing. And, uh, you know, really, Syria's got a lot of economic potential will never be realized as long as you have, uh, you know, as long as the state sponsor of terrorism and it's a very oppressive regime. You question the government, you disappear, and you're, it's, it's a really, it's really a bad government. Uh, so just observing it and being followed by, you know, you know, the secret police myself, uh, just really let them, maybe not a big fan of the government over there. Uh, it's a beautiful country. I love Syria, but then it's like, man, this, this government's corrupt and it's, it's bad. And they do support, they support terrorism. Uh, I remember, uh, I've got mixed feelings about President Bush. I have one thing to say, though, about Australians. When I was fighting, you know, serving in Iraq, uh, it's Americans, Australians, and Brits. So it's nice to have you guys, you know, helping us out in the war effort. But uh, uh, when I was, uh, you know, I was in Syria, and, you know, President Bush said there's an axis of evil. You have uh, uh, Syria, Iran, and North Korea. And people mocked him for that. But you now I'm walking around Syria, and I see Iranians over there and North Koreans, you know, and uh, up to no good. Uh, so I'm not I'm not a big fan of the Alawite regime. I, they, they did tolerate Christians to an extent, or or protect Christians, but uh, I think that regime, you know, needs to go. So hey, uh, uh, I was able. To- I was gonna I was gonna say, uh, Stephen. Now, for I haven't been to Syria. Um, uh, I have been to Israel. Mm-hmm. The closest I came to uh, Syria was the uh, the base of the Golan Heights. Uh, right. And when we were there, there was live firing uh, uh, between the both parties. We witnessed that while we were there. So we quickly uh, headed south. We got out of there the day that that happened. But um, what I was going to say right. from my point of view, and, and I don't know a lot about it, but I, I thought because the Alawite regime were a minority, they protected the other minority. So I'm a Christian and I assumed that they protected the Christian communities there. So are you saying it's not exactly that way? Right. Well, I have to say that the Alawite regime is the lesser of two evils. I'd rather have right. Assad there right. than I. So yes. it's just a choice between uh, buttressing the Alawites. But, uh, well, the fact of the matter is, you know, there's a minority, the Alawite minority. It's less than 10 percent, about about 10 percent or so. But what happened is the Fez Assad, uh, he's a Air Force colonel, I believe, and he did a coup. And he took over the government. 
And uh, uh, what he did, though, to legitimize his rule, because in the eyes of Muslims, uh, the Alawites are not true Muslims. They believe in reincarnation. They believe that Ali, the grandson of Muhammad, was Allah incarnate. He's a god. Uh, other strange things. I think they believe the moon is Ali and the stars are prophets of the past. Three. But it's a secret, secretive religion. It's more of a clan. And uh, most Alawites don't know what they believe until they're like 30 years old and initiated in it. You know, you know coming as a Baptist, you know, my my tradition is you know you're the plan of salvation. You make an intellectual decision to you know to serve Jesus Christ, open your heart to him. So the idea that you belong to a religion, you don't know anything about it, seems kind of uh, you know preposterous. But that's that's the case over there. Um, but what he, what Hafaz said Assad did to legitimize his rule is he got a a Shiite mullah to issue a fatwa saying that the Alawites are actually twelve or Shiites. Um, you know he's it's. Uh, we look at what happened the Arab Spring and all the, all the chaos, but I think that uh, I, I just like to see change and and, and uh, more moderate rulers. But you look at what happened in Egypt. This is very very interesting. How Mubarak was, you know, he collapsed, his government collapsed, and I had problems with Mubarak too because Mubarak would not protect his Christians the way he should. Uh, you know, Muslims would go into a church, radical Muslims machine gun and, and mow down Christians, and they'd be released from prison. The only time a Muslim would go to jail for doing an attack on Christian is if he accidentally killed a fellow Muslim. Like, you know, if you've been to Egypt, there's like a, a security guard outside every church, and usually that security guard is Muslim. So what happened is they, you know, these people decide they're going to go into a church and mow the people down, and they shot the security guard in the process. So the, you know, it's like three or four guys. The one who shot the Muslim security guard, he goes to jail. The other three guys go scot-free. That's Mubarak's uh, Egypt, and it's just, just so offensive to me. So he's not getting punished for it. Instead, you have Morsi commanding the uh, Egyptian military to take military vehicles and just run over Christians in the street and just participate in mass killings. So then you realize, well, maybe Mubarak wasn't that bad. At least he wasn't actually doing the killings the way uh, Morsi was. But thank God Morsi's out of there. Now a moderate is in there. So things are getting better in Egypt. Uh, I'd like to see a transition in, in Syria where you know the Alawite regime uh, goes out, but now it's a, it's a, it's a disaster. Uh, you see huge humanitarian crisis, and uh, I just you know I you, you want to help people, but with a, a large migration of Muslims going into Europe, and I, I look at these pictures and I see very few children and women, and you see a lot of men, 18 to 30 years old, all buffed up and look like they want to kill people, <laughs> you know. Uh, it's like wow, uh, very just, disturbing. Just before we uh, got uh, made this connection here, I was watching a video uh, only a few minutes before we connected, and I, I noticed that myself because I'd heard people talking about it. If I'm looking at what I what it purports to be, that's what I saw on a couple of videos. Yeah, I, um, saw that. I just looked at one today. Yeah, uh, I just looked yeah. at the refugees. And they're all yeah these uh, angry young men with murderous glares. You know, yeah, like, yeah. What, what is this? What's going on? What's going uh, on? But the Christians are real hard. Do uh, we, uh, Stephen, do we know uh, the Christians leaving as well? Are they going to Europe? What's happening to the Christian populations? I've known some, some people. I was, I was uh, in, in California, and I met some people in the Assyrian community trying to promote the movie project. And uh, some of them were, you know, people that came over here, I guess, were able to get some kind of refugee status. But I have a friend in Syria over a year ago, I tried to help her get refugee status, and they wouldn't help her. 
she's Christian. Look, she's Christian. She's in Damascus. She's under fire. And they refused to help her. Uh, but now Obama is claiming he's going to bring 200, you know, quarter million, uh, new Muslim refugees. So it's, it, what's going on with the refugee thing is very, uh, troubling and bizarre. Uh, but there are a lot of refugees, you know, internally displaced in the Middle East. There's a lot of refugees in Syria, uh, well, in Lebanon, I mean, and in Jordan. And, uh, uh, there's places in, there's a, uh, a city in northern Iraq called Baghdad. And it had a large minority of, well, that city apparently was almost a majority of, of Christians. And it was co- totally depopulated. So these people have to go to Arbel, uh, Dahuk, you know, uh, and what happened over a year ago is, you know, you got certain places where ISIS is and the Christians left and they're just sleeping in the streets and, you know, uh, a place that's secure and has a large Christian population. Uh, so there's a lot of internal displacement and there's reports of, uh, you know, uh, refugees in, in Turkey. But it seems like I'm sure there's some Christians among these refugees, but now we have a, a, a huge influx of majority Muslim, uh, refugees. But I, I, I keep asking what's going on. There's a, the Syrian Church of the East has a, uh, a welfare organization where they, they try to help these refugees. I was going to ask you, did you, um, I don't know if you keep up with the things happening in Australia, but a few weeks ago we had a, uh, our Prime Minister was ousted and we have a new Prime Minister now. And the former uh, Prime Minister, Tony Abbott, made an announcement that we were were going to take, I think it was about 12,000 Syrian refugees. And um, he was held down because he made the mistake, and I say that in air quotes, he made the mistake of saying, We'll take them mainly from the minorities, including uh, Christians and other minorities. And he was held down uh, for saying that. And then, um, strangely enough, uh, a week or two later, he was out of office. Look, that's not I'm, not I'm not trying to say that's the only reason they got rid of him, but I'm sure it didn't help because he was talking about um, uh, helping Christian minorities uh, in Syria. And I'm sure it did not go any way to helping him because... Um, you, you know, the one, the guy that's replaced him is far more, uh, liberal leaning, leftist leaning than, than he was. And they, uh, them and the, um, the opposition didn't like the fact that he said he wanted to help Christian minorities get out of Syria. But that's a bit of an aside. But did you hear about that at all, Stephen? No, I, I try to keep up with the news, but I haven't seen that from Australia. I need to look into that. Um, it's but, quite you shocking. Know, one thing that, that, I mean, this refugee crisis is terrible, but uh, ISIS targeting Christians, you know, yeah. I, I've been working with Coptic and Assyrian Christians for a long time, and the news media will not report on persecution of Middle Eastern Christians. But yeah. with these atrocities by ISIS, you know, it finally got some media attention, uh, even in Christian media. So for the first time in the past year and a half, you know, people are talking about uh, Coptic Christians and Assyrian Christians, but, you know, the word's getting out. Uh, but um, yeah, it's, uh, I read this book by, uh, Raymond Ibrahim called Crucified Again. And he was discussing in that the issue of like why the media doesn't want to report on the persecution of Christians in the Middle East. And I think he, his explanation is correct because you got this leftist mindset where the West and Christianity is the villains and, uh, you know, non-Western people are an aggrieved people. They're victims of the West. So they want to portray Muslims, the Muslim world, as victims of the West. And if Muslims themselves are persecuting people, then it's hard to portray them as the victims. 
uh, and they're, you know, they're, they, they have an anti-Christian bent, I believe. So they don't really feel like, uh, uh, reporting. Well, there's, there's other reasons. There's fear, you know, to, 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 uh, report a story that portrays Islam maybe in a negative light. You know, why are Muslims doing this? They don't want to report that, but they know for political correctness periods, but also, uh, uh, purposes, but also because, you know, they have this agenda where, you know, Muslims are supposed to be, uh, in their narrative, the victims. Uh, so Raymond Ibrahim said that's a very good book, and uh, it was written before uh, you know the rise of ISIS. But I, I strongly recommend that. Uh, he is a, uh, a Coptic American, uh, so he grew up speaking Egyptian. I mean, uh, Arabic. So uh, uh, I think his, his uh, material is a good resource. But uh, back in in you know 2001 to 2006, I made trips to Syria, and I visited these. There's like 30 Aramaic-speaking Christian villages, Assyrian Christian villages, uh, in the Kubra River Valley. And, uh, you know, once ISIS is in that region, uh, they're, they're farming villages. They're like undefended. And, uh, so I went there from village to village, kidnapping people, burning down churches, and, uh, they took over 300, uh, hostages. And they're trying to get millions of dollars from the church to eat, uh, to ransom these hostages. Uh, they released, you know, 10 here, 20 there, but I still believe they have over a couple hundred. Uh, and, uh, they, they just recently, they, they took three Assyrian Christians. Uh, and I think these were like, uh, doctors and, you know, leaders in the community and they shot them in the head and put them in the orange jump shoot and shot them in the head. I didn't see that reported in the news media at all. Uh, but, you know, I, I have, you know, information that works with Assyrian Christians and that community was reporting on that. Uh, but uh, it didn't make any news outlets that I could see. Well, the scripture says, greater is he that is in you than he that's in the world. Amen, amen. And God, we need your help in this one, please. All right, okay, so I've got the recording. We're back on. Okay, so um, so I might just ask you again, and we'll kick off from there, if you don't mind, Stephen. Um. Uh, Stephen, for the sake of us who who might not know, can you please explain um, who the Assyrians are? Well, the Assyrians are really the indigenous people of uh, Mesopotamia. Uh, they're Aramaic-speaking uh, Christians from Iraq and Iran. And, of course, uh, they view themselves as the descendants of the ancient Assyrians we read about in the Bible, uh, one of the earliest great empires of the ancient world. Uh, but the story of the uh, Assyrian Christian people begins with uh, a king in a city called Edessa. Uh, he ruled in the first century as a contemporary of Jesus. And uh, one of the church fathers named Eusebius, he's writing in the year of 325, and uh, he went to the city of Edessa, which was an Aramaic-speaking city, and he went through the archives and he found a story of Jesus in the city archives. The story was that King Abgar was afflicted with a terrible disease, and he'd heard of the miracle power of Jesus. And it says in the, the Gospel of Matthew, in the very beginning, that the fame of Jesus uh, went throughout all of Syria. Uh, so this is, you know, in accordance with what the Bible says. So this king heard about the, the miracle of power of Jesus. So he sent his messenger to ask that Jesus would come to uh, Edessa and heal him. But according to the account that, that Eusebius discovered, which was written in Aramaic and uh, translated into Greek uh, by Eusebius for his ecclesiastical history, Book, which is around the year 325. Uh, you know, this messenger arrived right before Good Friday, basically, and so uh, Jesus answers this uh, 
uh, messenger and says, you know, the time my glorification has come, I cannot go, yet I will send one of my disciples at a later time. So on the day of Pentecost, Thomas, filled with the Holy Spirit, commissions Thaddeus to go to the east. And Thaddeus goes and ministers to the Jewish community in Edessa and, you know, does signs and wonders. The king hears about it and sends for, uh, for Thaddeus. And Thaddeus comes and preaches the king, heals him of the disease. And that's the beginning of Christianity uh, in Assyria. Uh, so that's, that's the founding legend of the Assyrian people. But they, uh, they produced a lot of church fathers and theologians, and they wrote in a form of Aramaic called Syriac, uh, which is very close to Aramaic that Jesus spoke. And uh, there's various churches of the Syriac tradition that include the, uh, the Church of the East, which used to be called the Nestorian Church, uh, but also the Syrian Orthodox Church as well, and the Chaldean Catholic Church. Okay, there's many different denominations among the Assyrian Christians. Uh, there's the, the old historical Assyrian church, which is called the Assyrian Church of the East. Uh, in times past, it's called the Nestorian Church. And it's significant because during the Middle Ages, they, they founded churches in China and in India, all across Asia. It's a very missionary active church. Uh, but you also have uh, Protestants, and there's the Catholic Church on the Assyrian Church, called the Chaldean Catholic Church. And then there's the, uh, the Syrian Orthodox Church as well. So you have this Christian community that has uh, a variety of denominations. Uh, yes, you have, the, you have many Assyrians belong to the, the Assyrian Church of the East. Like I mentioned, it used to be called the Nestorian Church. Yeah. Uh, yeah. Even it wasn't founded by Nestorius as uh, apostolic in origin. Hmm. Uh, and that's, that's never been the correct title of the church anyway. Right. But there's a lot of uh, Presbyterians, other Protestant groups. And as I mentioned, it's also the Chaldean Catholic group and uh, the Syrian Orthodox and other denominations. If you're looking at the Christians in, in Iraq, uh, yeah, there are a variety of denominations. Uh, Assyrian Church of the East. You know, when you know the Iraq War started, uh, a lot of the insurgents did target the, the Christians. But uh, the rise of ISIS has become, you know, terrific. And uh, you're looking at a community that is over almost 2 million, which has dwindled to probably around 500,000 Christians left in northern Iraq today. Uh, we're seeing a huge uh, humanitarian and refugee crisis. Any Christians in the region? Okay. Um, all right. I'll just um, bring into the show uh, Cliff. Uh, Cliff, you're coming in live from a Denny's restaurant. Yep, from Denny's in the uh, east end of uh, Springfield. Springfield, Illinois? That's right. <laughs> Land- <laughs> but, uh, yeah, yeah, you know, uh, one of the things, because uh, I, I was listening a little mm. earlier, mm. Uh, when I went to China, uh, I, the ancient capital is Xi'an, and that's, uh, that's uh, in the center of the country. And uh, there's a place there called the... Uh, the Forest of Stellas. And one of the most interesting to me was a Stella that had a, an inscription with a cross on it. And it was of the, of the so-called Nestorian Church in China uh, from about 700 A.D. Right. And the, the, Chinese, uh, the Chinese were very hostile to Christianity uh, right around about 800. And they almost wiped them out, I think. But uh, but they were present in the capital. Right. Uh, what happened in that in that monument tells the story of how Christianity came to China. Mm-hmm. I believe the the monument yeah. was erected in the year seven eighty one, 
and it talks about an Assyrian missionary named Alopan. Uh, that's how they said right. Chinese. And uh, he went and preached the gospel before the emperor. The emperor enjoyed the gospel message and said that he wanted the gospel spread throughout China and paid for uh, the Bible to be translated into Chinese and Christian literature and also for churches and monasteries to be built. And recently a church was identified and has basically been reopened as a, you know, as a, uh, a museum of the of historian of Christianity, basically, uh, in China. But that monument's written in Chinese and in Aramaic. And uh, yeah. what you said, uh, sometime after your 800, uh, a xenophobic emperor came to power, and he was yeah. afraid of Buddhism and Manichaeism and uh, Christianity. And yeah. so he closed down all the churches and began a persecution. Uh, he's trying to promote Taoism and Confucianism because he saw those legitimately Chinese. And any foreign religion, such as Buddhism, Christianity, and Manichaeism, he tried to repress. Uh, but I, I believe Christianity survived, and it thrived, especially under the Mongol Empire, uh, yeah, until yeah. around 1400. So even though he did this repression, Christianity, you know, the Christian history in China uh, right, continued. Right. And it was, you know, as the Syrian, uh, Syrian Church of the East in China, uh, probably until the, the Roman Catholic missionaries took over the remaining, you know, churches there. Yeah, yeah, yeah. A lot of Christians in China could, you know, trace their history back if they were able to over a thousand years. Mm-hmm. Yeah, there. absolutely. Yeah, that, that's uh, that's pretty much what I found, and uh, and, and yeah, it's just uh, that was the most fascinating of all the the stellas I saw there. There, there was another one too, but uh, it wasn't as clear to look at, and and I, and I took pictures of those while I was there. Uh, Xi'an is a is an amazing place. Yeah, now there's, uh, it's, it'd be possible, and, and this is something I'd like to do in the future, is to, to, to visit a lot of sites. Because of, since they have such a long history in China, a lot of things have been discovered, uh, different stone pillars, like you mentioned. But they, they found a lot of literature in a cave in uh, western China. Probably a lot of the Christian literature which is written by Alopan himself. Uh, you can, they're, they're published these books. There's two books that are called the Jesus Sutras. Where this uh, Assyrian Christian literature in Chinese was translated has been translated into English. Uh, that's available, and a lot of the artifacts are uh, shown in those books. And there's also a uh, a book by a man named Christopher Bomber, Christoph Bomber. Uh, he you know, has photographs of the uh, the church, which is in very good condition. They've uh, discovered that with the Assyrian Christian Church in China has been repurposed. Now they're open to the public. So when I, if I make it to China, I'm going to visit all these. Uh, that's something I think is very fascinating about the Church of the East that there was and of course the, uh, the the Christian population in India, especially Kerala, uh, the state of Kerala is over almost uh, uh, 25% of the population St. Thomas Christian, and uh, the Thomas Christians in India belonged to the Church of East until the period of colonialism and the Chinese took over the church. I mean, the, sorry, the Catholics. In, uh, in yeah. India, it's one-fourth Christian to this day. They're St. Thomas Christians. And in uh, so the Portuguese, you know, Catholic colonizers got there and they were able right. to take over these churches and uh, uh, convert them to Catholicism. But many churches in, in Southern India have... Uh, 
they align themselves with the Church of the East or with the Syrian Orthodox Church or Catholic right Syrian churches. So they have a strong presence in uh, southern India. Just fascinating to me is you have this uh, an Aramaic church that was able to uh, found communities and, and have communities that are in India, China, Mongolia, Central Asia, and uh, parts of Africa and off the coast of Africa as well. So this is an important part of church history that very few people uh, know about. And, and uh, absolutely, are working on this movie project is to you know educate people about Thaddeus and the founding of the Syrian Church of the East and role in church history, especially now uh, when this community founded by Thaddeus and Thomas. Uh, is threatened with uh, you know genocide and uh, and extinction uh, unless the world organized against ISIS. Um, Stephen, I, I um, got a question for you. I wanted to, I should have asked you earlier. I'm listening to you talk about this topic with passion, and I um and I and I heard the earlier interview you did with um, Andy and Cliff. But um, how did you get interested in uh, uh, this these topics, like the topic of the Assyrian Church, interest in the Aramaic? How did that start for you? Well, I was interested when I was a teenager. I was uh, very interested in, I guess I am still to this day, in, you know, the Jewish roots of faith, the Semitic roots of, of right. Christianity, uh, first century Christianity. And, uh, I mean, it's interesting. There's a lot of good stuff written about it. But, I mean, I mean, Judaism as it is today isn't the same as it was in the first century. Mm. And there's problems where, you know, if you, you get to the Jewish understanding, it can create a deeper understanding of things, but then there's, there's also problems that have to be avoided because we have to keep the gospel uh, priorities, right? You know, Jesus came to teach the good news of God and uh, Jewish culture and things like that are, are well, for instance, look at the story of Nicodemus, right? This guy was poor observant and all that and he wasn't born again. So uh, it's important to say the Jewish roots, but I had some trouble with it. Then I, just, I was reading a book by a scholar named F.F. F. Bruce it was called The Books and the Parchments, and it's about uh, archaeology and manuscript evidence of the New Testament. And uh, he started off the book by speaking about or writing about the uh, biblical languages. The first chapter is about the Hebrew language, the second chapter is about Aramaic, and the third chapter is about, uh, is about Greek. And then he talked about different versions of the Bible from ancient times, the Greek Septuagint, Latin Vulgate, the Syriac Peshitta, and the Targum. So uh, in that chapter about Aramaic, I found it very, very uh, fascinating because it showed evidence that, you know, Jesus spoke this language, Aramaic language, Jesus spoke it. And uh, I thought that's that's pivotal for looking, you know, exploring the Jewish, the Semitic roots of Christianity to get the, the language right. And, and then that this language is still spoken. And I hadn't realized that. And I thought that was very fascinating. And then he, he wrote about, you know, the stories of the Assyrian Christians where he had this whole Christian community that still exists. That, uh, you know, was founded by the apostles and still speaks the language of Jesus Christ. So, uh, that got me into studying that. And that book also had, it had three chapters about Aramaic. It had that, the overview of the Aramaic language. And then it had a chapter on the Aramaic Targums, which were, uh, well, since Hebrew pretty much died out for the most part, uh, among Jewish people at the time of Jesus, they needed to have versions of the Bible in Aramaic. So they had these translations from Hebrew and Aramaic called the Aramaic Targums. Some Targums are actually found among the Dead Sea Scrolls. So there are many Targums. Uh, so he has a chapter on that about the Old Testament Aramaic. And then he had a chapter about the Syriac Peshitta, 
which is uh, the entire Bible in uh, in Aramaic, in uh, of uh, Aramaic phrase similar to the, the way Jesus spoke, and that that fascinated me that we have a version of the Bible in an ancient version of the Bible that you know in the language of Jesus Christ himself. Uh, so that's I think a very important resource in this Semitic so that got me on this research expedition. Then it's like, well, uh, if these communities will exist, I'd like to visit them. So I visited the uh, Assyrian uh, immigrant communities in Chicago and New York and uh, California. Uh, then, you know, I was able to go and visit Assyrian, you know, Aramaic-speaking villages in the Middle East itself. Uh, and also, I was in Iraq. I worked with uh, uh, Assyrian Aramaic-speaking translators to help us where so, so Stephen, you know, with this, this interest you have in, in, you know, in the early church, uh, in the early languages, have you gone and learned uh, Aramaic? Have you? I've studied Aramaic. Um, I'm okay at it. Mm-hmm. Not per- well, of course, you have. Uh, it's very interesting. There's different forms of Aramaic. I mean, it's one language with a lot of different dialects. You have, uh, right. for instance, the Book of Daniel uh, is in Aramaic, and parts of Ezra and, Jer- and Jeremiah as well. There's a little bit of Aramaic sprinkled around, you know, throughout the whole Old Testament. Uh, then you have Syriac, and that's the form of Aramaic I'm probably the best at, uh, which is very close to the way Jesus spoke, and it's it's the official ecclesiastical language of the Syriac uh, churches, basically. Uh, it's the language that's spoken at Edessa. It's kind of the simplest uh, Semitic languages to learn, and like I mentioned, it's very close to the Aramaic that Jesus spoke. Uh, then, you know, like all languages evolve and change, you have uh, modern Aramaic. And there's actually different dialects of modern Aramaic. As I mentioned in Malula, uh, th- that's Western Aramaic. Uh, that's supposedly the closest to the way Jesus spoke. Uh, but in the Syrian Orthodox, they have their dialect of Aramaic called Suryoyo. And then the Assyrians have their form of Aramaic. So there's like uh, four or five. Here you have this language, which is a threatened language. Uh, and yet it has a, a bunch of different uh, dialects. But I think the best one for me to, to focus on is uh, the Syriac, because a lot of the Christian literature, including the, the scriptures, uh, are written in that language. Well, I was uh, going to say, my understanding is that, like, like I personally believe that uh, Jesus would have spoken Aramaic, uh, because I think the Galilee, the time where he lived in the Galilee, it was an Aramaic-speaking uh, area. Is that correct? Yes, I, I think that um, there's there's a lot of controversy about the language that Jesus spoke, but mm. the scholarly consensus mm-hmm. is that Jesus spoke Aramaic, and there's reasons for that. Mm-hmm. Now, the New Testament is written in Greek, so a lot of people say, well, you know, it's written in Greek, this must, uh, you know, be the original language of Jesus. After all, you know, the, the gospel is written in that language. And so some people think that, but most people realize that, well, Greek, Greek was probably spoken to a degree in the Holy Land, uh, but the, the issue is that Jesus, in the Gospels, even though they're written in Greek, uses Aramaic, and Aramaic words are used often in there. So it's like, uh, why if, if you know why is Aramaic in the Gospels at all if everybody's just speaking Greek? Uh, and then as far as Hebrew goes, there's certain people that they'll argue. Uh, I think about 75 percent of the Dead Sea Scrolls are written in Hebrew. 25% are written in Aramaic, and they'll say, well, look, most of the scrolls are written in, uh, in in Hebrew. That proves that Hebrew is still spoken. Now, there are certain places that Hebrew may have still been spoken, but it seems that the majority language of the common people, especially the educated peasants, 
was uh, Aramaic. And uh, uh, the thing is that, that Hebrew was looked at as a sacred language since the in uh, Hebrew. So they, they elevated the importance. That doesn't mean that everybody spoke it. It's like Latin uh, in the Middle Ages. You know, the educated people use Latin, but that doesn't mean that the common people in the street spoke Latin. They spoke, uh, you know, colloquial uh, dialects. And uh, they found a lot of evidence like uh, gravestones, just common inscriptions. Uh, even in certain texts of Dead Sea Scrolls that are written in Hebrew, there's a strong uh, Aramaic influence. So what's happening is, you know, the scribe is writing in Hebrew, but his first language, uh, the language he thinks in is in Aramaic. And so you, you have an Aramaic influence in Hebrew sometimes. Well, well uh, when you look strictly at the Greek and the, the Kenai Greek, uh, you find Hebrew idioms in there that are translated in the Greek and they... Uh, they stand out. Um, but I was going to say, I would, I would, uh, speculate and just my opinion, I would speculate they probably spoke Hebrew in the, uh, in the synagogues. They may have spoke Aramaic at home, but perhaps in the marketplace or where they met people, you know, in common ground, they probably spoke, uh, Kine Greek. What do you think of that? Well, there's, uh, what I recommend is, uh, listen, John Meyer wrote a book. Uh, called the marginal Jew, and uh, what he tries to do in that book is mm. let's just get let's get three scholars, or, you know, three or four scholars together, mm. maybe a Jewish scholar, a Catholic scholar, a Protestant scholar, maybe throw an atheist in there, right? And try have these guys lock them up in a theological library and have them come up with a consensus mm. statement, what mm. we know about the historical Jesus. Yeah. So in that book, he examines historical evidence, and he's he's convinced that uh, uh, Jesus was primarily an Aramaic speaker. Right. And a lot of people will say, well, Jesus is probably trilingual. Yeah. His first language is Aramaic, mm -hmm. but, you know, as a rabbi, he had some familiarity with Hebrew and he probably spoke a little bit of Greek because, you know, here you have Israel, it's basically an international thoroughfare, right? You have Egypt right there and Syria. Uh, it's very, it's a, a very strategic place in the Roman world. And, uh, there are places like Sephoris, uh, which is a Greek speaking city. But, uh, it seems that, like, like if Jesus is on the cross, he's dying for the sins of the world, and he says, Eloi, Eloi, lama sabachthani. Uh, sabachthani is clearly Aramaic, it's not Hebrew. Hebrew is a totally different word. We, we would have said, Azabachthani, I think, is the Hebrew form. Uh, Alaha, which is Elohi, that's, you know, so it's, it's clearly, uh, I think lama is both Hebrew and Aramaic, because the languages are very similar. Uh, they're related. So here Jesus is suffering on the cross for the sins of the world, and while he's in pain and agony, the language he speaks, why would he speak some other language other than his first language? Uh, you know? I think, I think I tend to agree. And, uh, that's why I think, I think that in, I think, uh, in the Galilee, he, he would have been speaking Aramaic. I think he was an Aramaic speaker. Cliff, can I bring you in on this one? Do you have a comment to make on yeah. this? Yeah. Well, yeah, yeah. Well, personally, I kind of think he probably spoke all of them, maybe even a little Latin. But, yeah, uh, yeah, it's think, funny. If you watch Mel Gibson's The Passion of Christ, Jesus speaks Latin a couple times in that movie, which uh, yeah. is interesting. <laughs> so. But yeah, I, I, I agree. I think he, he spoke uh, Aramaic as a general rule. It, it, everything I've read tells me that, uh, that that's really the case. I, I know that there's a scholar that says that, uh, uh, that we, we all know that says that, uh, that he spoke Hebrew. Right. But, 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 that's that's a I think for him and some other people a dogma actually that they yeah. have have him speak Hebrew. Another indication is uh, in Hebrew the son of is Ben like Ben Hur, 
But in Aramaic, you say Bar for son of. So you have Barabbas, Bartholomew, uh, Simon Bar-Jonah, Bartimaeus. You know, that's, I don't know that Ben is used in the New Testament, but Bar, the Aramaic form, is used a lot. Uh, And then names, Jesus would give his disciples nicknames like Thomas, which is Aramaic for twin, Martha, which is Aramaic for lady. Uh, That's her name. Uh, What are some other ones? Well, Kepha for Peter is the Aramaic form for, you know, stone. Uh, so here you have Jesus quoted speaking in Aramaic. Uh, a lot of the, the, the apostles and disciples have Aramaic names. Uh, so there's also Aramaic uh, uh, place names, like Akuldema, which is the place of the uh, place of uh, a field of blood where uh, uh, Judas Iscariot committed suicide. That's also in Aramaic. So. Uh, Jesus is quoted speaking in Aramaic. Uh, people have Aramaic names and the places are in Aramaic. Of course, hallelujah is Hebrew, but that's something crossed over. Like we say hallelujah in our language, you must Hebrew word. Uh, Abaddon, I think, is mentioned in uh, the Revelations as a Hebrew word. But there's a lot of similarities between Hebrew. Some, sometimes the words are the same in both languages. Uh, but usually in the New Testament, it says, in Greek, it says Hebrew. It doesn't mean the language we call Hebrew today. It, it, most most often means uh, uh, Aramaic, even though a couple of places, I think in the book of Revelation, when it says Hebrew, it actually means Hebrew. Right. Well, now that you've brought that up, Stephen, let's talk about Acts 21, verse 40, and I'll read that out and we can talk about it because it's a good one. Um, I don't know if you got my message, Cliff, but I'll read it out so you can hear it. Um, so Acts 21, 40, uh, when he had given him permission, Paul, standing on the stairs, motioned to the people with his hand, and when there was a great hush, he spoke to them in the Hebrew dialect, saying, now, that's the NASB version, right? Um, right. And um, if you read it in uh, in Kino Greek, it said, uh, you know, and he spoke to them in the Hebraidi dialecto. Um, and I think in this part here, um, like you pointed out, uh, Stephen, in Revelation, Book of Revelation, I reckon there's parts in there when it's talking about uh, Hebrew, it means Hebrew, but here we're talking about Aramaic, and some versions of the Bible will have that. The New Living Translation calls it Aramaic. Um, the NIV calls it Aramaic. Um, right. um, the King James Version calls it the Hebrew tongue, but in Kine Greek, it's Hebraidi dialecto. So I'm thinking to myself, okay, so that's telling me that that's that's we are looking at Aramaic there. Did you want to expand on that a little bit, uh, Stephen? Well, one interesting thing is that in the Old Testament, what we call Hebrew isn't called Hebrew. When it's referred to in, in one place, it's called the Lip of Canaan, and the other place it's called Judean. Uh, so, but this language, the language of the Old Testament, we've come to call Hebrew. But at the time of Jesus. Uh, sometimes they called the language that the Jewish people spoke, which happened to be Aramaic at that time, Hebrew. And uh, part of the confusion is uh, how the, the does the Greek word mean modern Hebrew or the biblical Hebrew or does it mean Aramaic? And if you look at other sources like uh, Jerome and uh, Eusebius, they make it very clear when they when they, they mention Hebrew that they're referring to the Aramaic language. Uh, for instance, there used to be a Hebrew Matthew uh, that the church fathers referred to a lot. And uh, Jerome clarifies that when he's talking about the Hebrew Matthew, the language is actually Aramaic. 
Uh, and the same thing is in uh, one of the writings of Eusebius. Eusebius wrote around the year 325. He specifically says that the the apostles spoke only Hebrew, and he says, you know, that was Aramaic. So uh, we shouldn't we should look at how the word was used and what it meant to the people in the first century, not think that the language called Hebrew is the language we call Hebrew today. In some cases, maybe, but in other cases, it's not. And I think that, uh, yeah, the Greek says Hebrew, but it says dialect of Hebrew. The dialect that That's the right. Hebrew spoke at that time uh, yeah. was Aramaic. Now, what people usually say, and there's, there's truth to this, is that you had the Babylonian captivity. So Jeremiah told the people to repent. If they didn't repent, they'd be taken in exile. So the Babylonians defeated uh, the kingdom of Judah, took the people into exile for about 58, uh, 50 to 70 years. Then they started trickling back. And uh, a whole generation was born in Babylonia, and uh, the majority language is Aramaic. So when they go back, a lot of people are speaking Aramaic a lot better than they speak Hebrew. But people are still speaking Hebrew, uh, you know, because these books that were written afterwards, like Zechariah, and uh, Haggai and uh, Malachi um, are written in Hebrew, so Hebrew hadn't totally died out. However, you know, uh, you know, the scholars look at it and start seeing uh, Aramaisms, Aramaic figures of speech and influence on uh, later Hebrew. It's there. So what happened is uh, later, you know, gradually Hebrew largely displaced uh, Aramaic. I mean, what's Hebrew is largely displaced by Aramaic. The majority of the people spoke Aramaic, but it's possible that certain circles still spoke Hebrew and that the learned community kept it alive. But the language of the common people, uh, who Jesus ministered to, to a great deal was Aramaic. And that's why, uh, you know, Jesus is in the Gospels, in the Greek Gospels, we see so many. There's probably 50 to 60 Aramaic words and figures of speech in, you know, in the Greek. And they can't be ignored, Stephen. We shouldn't just um, uh, wash over them and go, well, you know, well, I don't know why that's there. I think we, we need to look into them and see why they're there. Just like I mentioned earlier, the sort of uh, uh, Hebrew idioms that are translated into Greek stand out when you read the Bible in um, Kino Greek. Um, you got a comment there, Cliff? Yeah, uh, actually, uh, what Stephen was talking about with the uh with the uh, Arameans that were popping up in the uh, different texts and stuff. See, th- th- that, that's also what, uh, what what happened in the, the languages, uh, well, actually with the, the Romance language, right, that they were coming into, into, uh, into being in Europe uh, during the Middle Ages. They, they can actually trace how Latin, uh, as it was used, because it was kind of an international language there, they can trace how it was uh, kind of being used, actually, by by certain words that really weren't Latin, but but were more of a, the Romance language of, of the local area, and so that they could prove that they were they were speaking a form of Latin, but it was a different one, and it was uh, actually quite influenced by uh, local languages like Celtic, or or like you know in France, for example, or or with. Um, with the Germanic languages, so so they were able to show this. Well, they they showed the same thing with the uh, with the, uh, the the Hebrew of the later periods uh, that 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 the uh, the Aramaic was was uh, coming in more and more just because of usage, and that they were using the the, the two the two languages together side by side. Sometimes they didn't have a word for something, so they would pull from the Aramaic. And then uh, that's a that's a great point because it, it does show this this development uh, 
there, there's also kind of similar things that happen with uh, with the uh, Ashkenazi um, dialect that, that became uh, Yiddish and the uh, the, uh, the Sephardic uh, language uh, also uh, that that they uh, that these uh, the, the the development of those languages is really clear also because with the Ashkenazi you have a uh, you have Slavic and uh, Hebrew terms that came into the German, which is the basic uh, form of the language that, that right. uh, Ashkenazi is. Yeah, the Yiddish language is a German, is a German language, but it has mm-hmm. huge uh, Hebrew and Slavic influence. Mm-hmm. Uh, but in reality, scholars that look at the Old Testament, all languages evolve, and you can, you can sort of date certain texts about how how Hebrew evolved. We had the Latin-based, you know, Romance languages. You had Latin spoken and evolved into these different Romance languages. Well, the same thing is true. That's why Arabic and Aramaic and uh, Hebrew are so similar, is because they developed out of an earlier uh, prehistoric language called uh, Proto-Hebrew. So, uh, yeah, the, the Semitic mother tongue, which is extinct, and it survives in uh, Aramaic, uh, Hebrew, Arabic. And uh, certain extinct languages, such as Akkadian, which was the language of the ancient uh, Assyrians and Babylonians. And uh, since you have all these forms of Aramaic, you know, the linguists can take it, uh, take it all together and uh, kind of put together the original Semitic mother tongue. Uh, oh, yeah. yeah. It's kind of fascinating looking at uh, language studies. Yeah, well, I, I, I love uh, studying language. I, I'm, I'm a linguist myself. And uh, I studied a lot of the Indo-European stuff, but uh, I, I'm just now starting to uh, really uh, investigate the Semitic languages. Uh, correct me if I'm wrong, but what, there wasn't a whole lot of uh, divergence between the Semitic languages like there was with the Indo-European, except with uh, the Babylonian, or, or Akkadian, actually, yeah. uh, the Babylonian and uh, Assyrian language. Uh, and and uh, I, I, if I'm... If I'm not mistaken, uh, actually, there, there's a lot of Sumerian that came into that, and that the uh, that possibly that was never a spoken language, but may have been a kind of an official one. Well, the Sumerian the Sumerian language doesn't belong to any uh, language family that's spoken today. Mm-hmm. Uh, so a lot of languages, like you like you mentioned, Indo-European language or Bantu languages of Africa, they could categorize that language, but uh, Sumerian uh, is their own unique. They call it a language isolate. And uh, they actually found an earlier language isolate that uh, influenced Sumerian to a, to a degree. So, uh, oh, really? Yeah. Wow. So, but Sumerian's not related to any, any living language. And it, it died out. Uh, the Akkadians tried to use it as a, you know, an official religion for a while. But uh, uh, it, it died out. Like you said, a lot of the Semitic languages are very similar. But the uh, the Eastern dialects, you know, like Canadian languages, uh, were really distinct. Uh, but they're all Semitic languages. So. so one thing I want to talk about before we left is I want to get back to the uh, the movie project. What we're trying to do with this uh, this film, what we've done so far. Um, did you want to share some Aramaic with us um, so we can hear what it might sound like? Uh, yeah, I could do some of the the Lord's Prayer. Sure. I won't watch a fucking start. Awun Dwashmea Nitkadash Shma, Titi Malkufe. That's uh, our Father who art in heaven, hallowed be thy name, let thy kingdom come. Uh, 
So that's that's the beginning of the Lord's Prayer right there. And the Lord's Prayer is another way we can see that that you, you know Jesus spoke uh, he spoke Aramaic because it begins with you know Abba or Abum, you know our Father, and then we see similar which uh, was known at Jesus' time. Uh, but the interesting thing is the word Hobain, uh, which is used later on in the Lord's Prayer, which means uh, debts and trespasses. Uh, one, I think Luke has uh, debts and Matthew has trespasses, vice versa. And uh, that word is, the word for debt and trespasses is different in Hebrew and Greek, but it's the same word in uh, ancient Aramaic. So that's that's an indication that Jesus spoke this language that the Hebrew Abba's the, the Aramaic Abba's in there, the the unique word Cobain, but also the similarities between uh, uh, the Lord's Prayer and the Kaddish Prayer, which is a, an Aramaic prayer. So, yeah, the, the other Aramaic words that a good example of showing the relationship between Hebrew and Aramaic is the the, the greeting word in Hebrew. You say Shalom, and uh, they say Salam in uh, in Arabic, but in Aramaic it's Shalama. So that kind of shows that uh, maybe Aramaic is between uh, Hebrew and Arabic, but it's actually it's more similar to uh, Hebrew than it is uh, to Arabic. Well, I understand uh, that the uh, words Aram and Arab are actually related, and that the uh, that the uh, B sound in Arabic uh, came from uh, them not. Uh, you know, making it nasal, but actually bumping it off their lips, and uh, that there was a the very close connection between the two. They're, they're practically, in some ways, the same language. The word Aram means Syria, basically. But what we how we use the word Syria today, uh, Arab. I'm I'm not sure about the you know Arab basically came to mean you know the nomadic uh, peoples. I'm not. I'd have to investigate the the etymologies and see how they're connected but uh you know they're both they're both semitic uh people sometimes that you, you look you see a lot of similarities like uh in numbers and things like that uh very very closely related all three languages hebrew aramaic and uh arabic oh yeah yeah that, that's what i've seen is, is uh, they're so close it's really kind of scary so Stephen, tell us a bit about the movie that you're working on what what stage are you up to at this point in time Okay, let's go back to the story. Back in 2014, you know, movie producer contacted me, and he read uh, a paper I've written, which is it's available on the Journal of the Syrian Academic Studies. That's J A S dot org. It's called Marthoma: uh, The Apostolic Origins of the Assyrian Church in Eastern India. And in that paper, I investigated the story about Saint Thomas going to India. Uh, is it possible? Is it true? Can we know for certain? And uh, I mean, there's no like solid evidence that, you know, Thomas definitely historically went to India. We do have a lot of ancient references to him doing that. Uh, but there's a lot of indications that the story is most likely true uh, based on like the reference to King Gondophorus in the, the Gospel of Thomas and the discoveries we made that both Greeks and Romans did have contact uh, with India. Uh, so, Anyway, it's a fascinating story about Thomas going to India, and uh, I was working on writing a novel about that, and this producer out of the blue contacted me, and uh, he's thinking to make a great film, and, and I, I agree. Especially lately, we've seen a lot of uh, Indian-themed movies like Slumdog Millionaire and Life of Pi, 
And lately, Hollywood's been starting to make, you know, faith-based movies again. Uh, just recently, they had this movie called The War Room about a woman's prayer closet. And it was here in America is like one of the number one movies for uh, three weeks in a row. So there's a demand for uh, faith-based and biblical movies. So uh, the pro problem I've had in, in, in working on this project is, you know, I'm trying to make uh, a Syrian heritage of these masters of Christians. So, you know, the humanitarian takes, you know, precedence. So it's, it's been a little difficult for me to get uh, to raise the funds for the film like I was uh, hoping to. Uh, but finally... Uh, things have been starting to work out. I've gotten, we've got a good set. There's a place in Dallas uh, called Capernaum Village uh, where a woman, she, I guess she inherited a ranch and she's donated a portion of that ranch to gospel ministry. And she built a uh, biblical, first century biblical village there. And I've been able to procure costumes that have been used in the Rome series and Dwayne Johnson's Hercules uh, in the Spartacus TV show. So I have a lot of nice costumes. And uh, we have a set, and I've gotten some funding. So we did stage one uh, of the filming already back in August. We filmed some pivotal scenes in the life of uh, Thaddeus, uh, the messengers coming to Jesus and uh, uh, telling about King Abgar, the healing of King Abgar. So uh, I was able to do some, some filming already, and I'm in, I'm in the process of editing that right now. And the next stage, which we're going to be doing at the end of November, is uh, we're filming more. And this time, uh, we're going to be we're going to be focusing on Thaddeus's ministry in Armenia uh, and the story of his martyrdom. Uh, of course, Armenia is in the Caucasus, and uh, Thaddeus, after preaching to the Assyrians, founding the Assyrian Church to East, basically, he went uh, north to Armenia, where he was able to. Uh, Converted princess named Sandu, and uh, her father was against her conversion and uh, persecuted her and martyred Thaddeus. So, very dramatic uh, story. So, we'll be filming that that part of the story soon. But what we're doing is uh, the original idea is to do a, a full length motion picture and get Lorenzo Lamas, but I haven't been able to get the full funding to do it that way. So, we're filming these shorts and. Uh, We'll go from there, and hopefully I'll be able to show these in uh, this film in, in churches and the Assyrian community over here and start raising money so we can move, move forward and make a, a full-length motion picture. And I'm the original idea was to do Thomas in India, and I, I, I'm not giving up on that. I have two scripts written. We have Thaddeus in uh, uh, Assyria and Armenia, and we're also, uh, I also have the script written about Thomas in India. So I'm moving forward, and we actually have filming in the future and I'm doing some editing of the footage we've uh, we've, we've filmed already. Well well I'm just really kinda of curious what when, when you're gonna have it out in the theater, the, the the first one. We actually have a trailer out uh that we put together for what what we've done already. When will it be in theaters? I, I don't know. I think that uh what we're gonna try to look into is uh I want to do a theatrical release, and once we have the footage done, we're going to do some sort of theatrical release, uh, maybe just uh, in the you know the, the Syrian community over here. Uh, but we're looking towards getting it uh, on on Netflix and, and, and that uh, venue uh, once we get everything edited. So that that was Netflix. Yeah. Uh, try to talk to my church and have it on. 
I think it's a very important message that people know about not only the history of the church, uh, but also become aware of uh, really the antiquity of the, uh, the Syrian church in particular. And and I think uh, I think it's very Right. One one thing I'm going to mention that's happened is that uh, earlier in the year, the patriarch of the Assyrian Church in the East died. And what happened was uh, when when Iraq became an independent country, uh, well, actually, during World War One, the Assyrians fought with the British under the promise that the British would allow them to have some degree of autonomy. And then once the war is over, they said, well, we're not going to do that. You know, you, you forget about having any autonomy. You have to live under Muslim rule, even though they helped them win World War Two. And the Assyrians also fought the, the Nazis during World War II and the, the pivotal battle of uh, Fallujah. But when the Iraqis had independence, they started persecuting the Christians, the massacring Christians, and the patriarch was forced into exile. And uh, there's been another patriarch since then. That patriarch died, and he was replaced by uh, Mardinka. And Mardinka just passed away earlier this year, so they didn't have a patriarch. But now, see what they've done, is since the, the state of Iraq became an independent country, the, the patriarch the patriarchal see has been in the United States, but they have elected a new patriarch, uh, Gorgas, and uh, he's moved the patriarchal see back to Iraq. Uh, so he's the he was the bishop of Iraq. So what the Assyrian people are trying to do is you know reestablish their church, you know, and the, the headquarters of the church in their homeland, and uh, not allow ISIS to to kill off their community. But that's that's the threat. Here we have. An ancient Aramaic-speaking community, these Christians still speak the language of Jesus, and they're under the threat of genocide, and uh, nobody knows who these people are. And through this movie, we hope to uh, educate you know, Christians and, and the world in general uh, that this is an important community founded by the apostles of Jesus Christ, and it needs to be preserved. They need to be able to uh, preserve a, a presence in their own homeland. Well, I, yeah, I think that's a very important message. Uh, well, when I was living in Turkey, uh, there's a lot of uh, a lot of the uh, Church of the East that was there, and uh, the the man that uh, did the uh, he he was the manager at the uh, Bible store in Istanbul. Uh, he uh, he was uh, uh, an Assyrian. And in fact, he was from he was from Edessa, which is now Şanlıurfa, and uh, and he. Uh, very brave man, very good man too. I, I understand he's in the states right now. Uh, <clears throat> a fellow named Zeki, and uh, they had a they had a church uh, right there in uh, um, the, well, well, the the downtown district. Uh, but it wasn't uh, it wasn't a real good neighborhood. It was actually a pretty bad one. Uh, uh, but the but they you also had the uh, the the uh, bishop of. Uh, of the uh, the Greek Church, and they still have a, a fellow who uh, who's the Archbishop of uh, of Constantinople or Istanbul, however you want to put it. And he's in Fatih, and uh, the, and and actually, it's really kind of funny how low key it all all seems to be. But the thing is, is that this is a really major uh, uh, thing. There, he never left; he was always there. And and the, the, I think it's really important now that they have a they have an art uh, you know the, the head of the church again that's back in uh, back in their home country. I think that's just great news. All right. Well, the thing to realize about the Assyrians in Turkey is uh, that used to there should be a huge population of Assyrians in Turkey. What happened is during the genocide of 1915, they killed a, a million Armenians and hundreds of thousands of Assyrians, and uh, Recently, they had an Assyrian uh, convention here in, uh, in the United States, 
And uh, there's Nicholas Algilo, and he, he went back to these villages in Turkey. There's a huge Assyrian community there, and they're all ghost towns. A lot of the churches and buildings are just standing there uh, vacant. Uh, but, you know, we read about all these atrocities that the Turks and the Kurds committed against the Assyrians and the Armenians uh, during the World War One period. But now, uh, unfortunately, uh, history is repeating itself. And we can, you know, see these things on TV that we used to read about in uh, history books. And uh, hopefully uh, we can make a difference with this, this film project. It's an important medium to convey the gospel message. But also, uh, you know, there's a lot of differences among Christians in different denominations. We all agree on the apostles. And uh, with this film, I'm trying to be as, as faithful uh, to the original sources as possible. And uh, the doctrine of Adai, which the script is based on, uh, it's, it sounds like something in the New Testament. It's very biblical. Uh, and it's, I think that it, it brings about Christian unity. It draws us back to the message of Jesus uh, and the, the apostles. And it also creates awareness about this uh, refugee crisis. So it's very exciting. We're able to make progress and start moving forward on this project. And, uh, yeah, uh, once we get the, uh, the final cut done, I'd be good to, to go up to, you know, show it in your church and uh, other churches so we can, you know, get as big as much exposure to this uh, project as possible. Um, Stephen, where can people find more information? Have you, do you have a website? I, I do have a, I got a blog, which mm -hmm. is Aramaic Herald. That's a way to contact me. I'm also on Facebook. Uh, and I have a, a YouTube channel, which is uh, just a, it's YouTube uh, Aramaic 12. I have a lot of uh, videos about this movie project and uh, a lot of teaching videos, and videos of me preaching in various places, you know, Uganda, India, and other places I've gone uh, kind to of So those are uh, three ways they can contact me or learn about the project. Okay, well, what I'll do is I'll get those links off you, Stephen, and I'll put them in the show notes when I put the show up. And okay. I recommend this video very highly. It's great stuff. I, I love I love all the, the work you've done, Stephen. It's, it's just inspiring to me appreciate it well well what i hope from this program that we're doing here together is that um people will understand that uh you know a lot of us are living comfortably in the west and uh, our brothers and sisters are are being persecuted um you know in the near and and and, and in the near and middle east and um at the very least you know it's it's it it, it sounds so tried to say oh at the very least we can pray but 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 you know we should be praying for our brothers and sisters there and you know shows like this movies like yours that you're putting together and people like you let us know that these things are happening that we can get tucked up into our beds with full full bellies in warm beds but um you know there's uh, people who um our brothers and sisters are being persecuted and um i think that's what we the, the reason we're having you on, Stephen, is so that we can help you get that message out and people can understand that, hey, if nothing else, can we all just pray for our brothers and sisters that are being persecuted, if nothing else? Uh, and like I say, I hate saying that because it just sounds uh, like prayer isn't much. Um, but, you know, uh, Paul said to, you know, constantly pray. So uh, I just hope that we can help push that along a bit, perhaps help uh, push your your uh, movie along a bit but like I keep saying this message that hey there's people just like me and you who believe in the same saviour that we all believe in and uh, who are accepting of the grace that's being offered and they're being terribly persecuted in the Middle East what I think people need to do is like you say well first off they need to be informed Yeah. Uh, secondly they need to pray prayer has power 
they need to tell other people about it. We need to also engage the media mm-hmm. yeah. and uh, give to organizations. There's uh, the Barnabas Fund gives to help needy Christians in the Middle East. And the Assyrian Church of the East also has uh, a relief organization. So be informed, pray, uh, tell other people, your friends, maybe contact the media, uh, your elected officials, but also give. You know, just even a little bit make a big difference to these people. Like I was saying, last year, winter was coming down. These people just fled to a, a Christian village that was more secure, and they had nothing, no food, no shelter, and they had to sleep uh, under the stars. So uh, there are things we can do to make a difference, and I think that those are uh, some key things that everyone can do. I agree. I agree. Uh, final thoughts, Cliff? I, actually, I think that, uh, that uh, really, Stephen's covered it very well. Right. Uh, it, it did a great job. I, I, I just love to listen to what you have to say, Stephen. Like I say, I'm a big fan of yours. So. You, you're, you're well-researched. You know what you're talking about. And and you've been there. And, uh, and I think that's really important, too. Uh and, and people need to hear this message about about the Aramaic Turks, not just for the antiquity, but for also what's going on right exactly. now today. Yep. And, uh, and and this is really important stuff. You know, I mean, a lot of people aren't aware of what's really going on over there. They're so, they you know they see the people getting their heads cut off and they go, "Oh, that's terrible." But but there, 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 there's a lot more than that. These people are martyrs. The the Eastern Church has provided more martyrs than any other church in the world. Right. And 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 that that's a fact. I mean, they they got persecuted in China before anybody else was there. They took the whole brunt of the of the, of the Islamic expansion uh, back in back in the wake of Muhammad after he died. So, I mean, they took the brunt. Of it. And and uh, and not only that, they also produced a lot of uh, great great cultural things there. A lot of the uh, a lot of that that so-called Islamic golden age was because of the. Uh, the Christian. And sadly, that's where Stephen lost power. As you uh, heard me say during that recording, um, we were recording that during that major storm that hit Mexico and Texas. And we did have a few other uh, technical difficulties, uh, which is quite often the case with us here. So we just ask you to pray for us, pray for our show. Um, if you'd like to write to us, you can write to me at gk at likeflintradio.com. You can write to Cliff at cliff at likeflintradio.com. Uh, for more episodes, uh, all available on the web there, just go to our website, www.likeflintradio.com. Uh, thanks for listening and we'll catch you next time. God bless and huru. Click, click.